0: James got the day off. We have leapt right back into winter, but we're yes. going to be leaping into something like summer by Monday, and some pretty good temperatures for the weekend. So we got a good looking weekend ahead as we knock on the door to
1: that. Well, Michigan weather for you, I'm isn't
0: it you. lovely? Uh, <laughs> it, it truly is the gift that keeps on giving. If you don't like, uh, you know, consistency, In, there are stories that you say are important, and there are stories that say just just get your your head wants to explode. We've got a situation out in Warren where we reported back in mid-January where a snowplow driver plowed over an older lady as she was going to get her hair done in a parking lot. Now it's a parking lot. Yeah. Pedestrians are everywhere. Right. And at the time, we said, How, what, what was going on there? Well, it turns out he was crap-faced. He's, this guy's name is Jason Walkley. He's charged with operating a motor vehicle while intoxicated. Operating it with a suspended license causing death, that's a fifteen year felony. See, that's the that's the that's the this, He had no <clears throat> business being behind and let's face it, there are a few vehicles that can be as devastating as a snowplow. Snow, snow plow. plow, yeah. You know, motor vehicles are to some degree designed with what's called pedestrian protection. Sure. Okay? That if you hit a pedestrian, there are some things that will at least mitigate the damage to the, the human that you hit, not so with a snow plow. It's a big old blade, and this lady never had a chance. Um, his bond is set at $25,000. Yeah. Now, Which if is this is if he has 30, repeatedly 10%. shown that he can't keep himself from getting behind the wheel, drunk out of his mind, then perhaps he shouldn't have bond at all. No, I agree. Um, but this is just, I mean, this guy is now being charged also as a habitual fourth offender. Which begs the question well, what about the three other strikes? <laughs> exactly. And why was he out at all? And if, you know, and meanwhile, this uh, poor lady's family is is mourning her loss. But um, we didn't know all of the particulars until the prosecutor rolled them out. But, uh, uh,
1: so he has to wear a GPS tether. If he gets out. If he gets out with yeah. the alcohol monitoring.
0: So we can actually see him behind the wheel of the plow the next time. Exactly. And know he's drunk. Yeah. Um Pete Lacido is good and whipped up about it, and i 'm sure he will uh, prosecute him to the fullest extent but it's it 's just an infuriating case and then we 've got this couple in Detroit that didn 't keep their three dogs locked up, causing the death of a man who was doing nothing but getting off of a bus after a work interview
1: yeah, uh, he was buying clothes he was coming from the mall because he was buying clothes because he had a work interview the next day. Now, the owners of three dogs involved in that fatal mauling in Detroit earlier this year they faced charges forty year old uh, 40-year-old Roy Eric Goodman and 38-year-old Trevina Goodman are accused of dangerous animal-causing death following that January 29th attack on Harold Phillips, who tragically passed on February 2nd. It uh, happened, as I said, as Phillips was walking home from a bus stop from West Chicago in Longacre. He was coming from the mall. He had an interview the next day. He was going out to the mall to buy clothes for that interview. The unleashed dogs, they broke through this unsecured gate leading to the vicious attack, and he sustained several energy, uh, injuries. He lost his arm, um, and he was in the hospital on a life support, and um, he succumbed to his wounds. And the owners of the dog guy, their dog has bitten before. Exactly. A child, it's, as a matter of fact. So, we've got two stories totally
0: unrelated, but, but hit you upside the head yes. with how did the system fail these poor people? Wow. Um, the system is designed to protect us from those that are either uh, too negligent or too indifferent to their neighbors' health, safety, and welfare to do to just the basics not getting behind the wheel of a snowplow right. out of your mind. And locking your dogs up that you know are vicious. Ex- ex- exactly. So Those um, dogs were
1: euthanized, as a matter of fact. The animal control uh, took over those dogs, and so they were all euthanized. Can you see me biting
0: my tongue? I see
1: you biting your tongue.
0: <laughs> I see you biting your tongue. I do. <laughs> I just... I, ah. Um. <laughs> We had big uh, a lot of late breaking news involving uh, Donald Trump. Illinois has kicked him off the ballot, but they have stayed the ruling, uh, giving the former president a chance to appeal. But that's a March nineteenth primary, so uh, he doesn't have a lot of time to respond. Mm -hmm. Meantime, we're still awaiting the Supreme Court's decision and whether or not the Fourteenth Amendment can be used in that way. And we expect a decision pretty much any time now. Meantime, the Supreme Court took up the case of Trump's very broad. Immunity, immunity plan, yeah. which basically says you can do anything you want, never be charged, whether you're in office or whether you're yeah. a former president. And, and he raises some important issues about how the weaponizing of the justice system could be used to harass former presidents. However, um, it will be taken up by the Supreme Court. He, he has what could only be termed at least a partial victory because of the way the court calendar is flowing here. They've set the date for hearings on April 22nd. The judge in the case has promised him at least 90 days of pre-trial prep, mm-hmm. which takes us into September or October.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the DOJ has a longstanding policy slash tradition of not taking up consequential trials close to an election. Yeah. So now have they bumped up against that? Will this be pushed after the election? And there has been a lot of, I think, very thoughtful editorializing about this, saying democracy demands a decision by the Supreme Court because if you want to have an informed electorate before a highly consequential presidential election they need all the facts in these cases Spe- specifically the the mar lago case with the classified documents and whether or not the president uh... interfered with an election and whether or not he was a participant in the conspiracy with the false electors and everything right. else
1: to overthrow an election so uh... well a lot of pundits feel that you know the uh, supreme court will um, uphold the appeals court on this and that Donald Trump did basically what he wanted to do, which was to stall.
0: And Andy McCarthy, who is <laughs> certainly a very conservative, very smart guy that we hear a lot from Fox, has written about this in the National Review saying, look, this this is the most, this is the dumbest argument ever, this immunity <laughs> argument. And he says, make no mistake, this don't even get caught up in whether or not the Supreme Court rules on the facts in this case. The fact is, this is a delay tactic. It's That's delay all t- it ever was, anyway. When you mm-hmm. look at the ridiculousness of this very broad immunity claim that mm-hmm. that uh, Trump has made, and uh, and, th- and then at the same time yesterday, uh, the president came out. And you remember originally after the judgment came down in the civil fraud trial in New York, uh, Letitia James, who this is, this is a, in my opinion, a highly mm-hmm. political, highly partisan mm-hmm. uh, prosecution. Um, you know, you, you owe four hundred fifty-five million bucks, right? Uh, Trump kind of swept aside. well, I've got that money. That's not a big deal. Well, it's a big deal. Yesterday, his attorney said he doesn't have it. He's seeking to have it knocked down to $100 million. The judge rejected Trump's claim, saying that he wanted to delay putting up the escrow for the, you know, he has to put up a bond, bond yeah. to get an appeal. They struck that down. But they did something very interesting. They've opened the door to him getting loans from New York banks. That See, that was the year, issue. Right. Yeah, that three-year moratorium that they had on right. that. Right. Um, the judge stayed that. So it opens the door. The question is now, when you look at Trump as a credit risk, mm. does it really matter? Are those banks going to be beating down his door to cover his bets here? Not just because of the $455 million verdict. He's got an $88 million verdict with E.G. E. Carroll. Yeah. So he has, and uh, we're going to be talking with all of this with Matthew Schneider coming up at 6 49, because there's a very real possibility that you're going to see Donald Trump have to liquidate some of his most prized assets. Oh, and you know assets. assets. Yeah. And, you know, know, what doesn't kill him makes him stronger. Uh, But this, financially, this is a financial existential threat to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, as it turns out, he doesn't have that kind of liquidity. Uh, I don't know too many billionaires that do. They keep their money working for them, yeah, right? That's how, it, that's how they keep So we'll see what happens there. The also, uh, a devastating report yesterday. This is the independent report looking at the uh, Board of Trustees at Michigan State University. Coming to the conclusion that Board of Trustee Chair Rima Vassar, Trustee Darius Dino, violated the university's policies and code of ethics and should be referred to Governor Gretchen Whitmer for expulsion from the Board of Trustees. Um, this was all after Brianna Scott, a former uh, another trustee, brought allegations against Vassar saying she was using way over-the-top mm-hmm. in- intimidation tactics. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were able to substantiate many but not all of those allegations in this outside uh, investigation. But, um, boy, it puts the ball right back in the governor's court. It does. She should do what they s- are recommending her to do. What Rima Vassar did, and th- 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 when you look at the venomous Uh,
1: Oh, looking at some of those. Toxic environment
0: on that board. Oh, my goodness. Something's got to give. And if this group says objectively, and the crazy thing is, is what's going on with the folks coming in saying this is racially motivated? Brianna Scott is an African American American. who says, who is the injured party here? Exactly. So uh, we'll see what happens there, but it's. it devastating, but, and they did have some uh, criticism for Brianna Scott too, saying she violated the code of conduct by sharing privileged information with the media uh, when she brought some of these allegations forward. But uh, we'll we'll wait for that other shooter shoot to drop. drop. Yeah, when we come back, Hunter Biden going up before the uh, House Oversight Committee, uh, surprising a lot of us by not invoking the Fifth Amendment once. What does that mean, and where does it go from here? Were there any smoking guns? Were there any knockout punches? Ryan Schmills, Fox News Radio correspondent, next on JR Morning.
1: And let's get into the latest political developments making headlines from Hunter Biden's condemnation of the GOP-led impeachment inquiry to his father, President Joe Biden, as a political charade to the congressional leader's 11th hour deal on a short-term funding extension to avert a government shutdown and the announcement from Mitch McConnell the longest-serving Republican leader in the U.S. Senate, as he reveals his decision to step down from his leadership position in November. We're going to tackle all of these issues this morning with Ryan Smells, Fox News radio correspondent, and WJR contributor, who joins us on the JR Morning Live line. Ryan, good morning. Hey, good morning, Lloyd. How are you? I'm good. Let's start with the short-term funding extension. It seems like it's a bit of a tightrope act with these short-term extensions. Uh, How confident do you think the lawmakers are that they can Pass this, the remaining appropriation bills within a given time frame?
3: Well, I, I think when it comes to passing the short term extension that they have planned on voting on today, which will be uh, pretty much a one week extension, I think there's plenty of confidence they have the votes for that. But when it comes to getting these final appropriations bills across the finish line, I believe they're planning to vote on six by next week. Mm-hmm. I think there is still a little bit of hesit- hesitancy with how that's going to look and how that's going to go. But because this is bipartisan, bipartisan, it looks like it has the blessing of leadership in both parties with the blessing of the appropriations chairs from both parties in both chambers. It looks like they should be on the right track to pass them. But I think what the thing to watch is going to be is the political backlash that comes to Speaker Johnson with this.
1: Right, right.
0: Well, in terms of, of what's at stake here, I mean, we've got 12 different bills that we're talking about. What? government functions are imperiled here we've got agriculture justice interior veterans affairs i mean or are, are, could there be some veterans benefits that are held up if these aren't passed
3: uh, i think that definitely is a possibility i think just about any anything that's under the 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 thing that you would call government funding is at risk with this so uh, pretty much everything is at risk when it comes to these appropriations
4: bills
1: uh, and you were talking about Speaker Johnson. Uh, as we know, what happened last time when, you know, uh, there was backlash um, with the previous speaker and they had the motion to vacate is, you know, that's still kind of hanging over his head. That could happen again.
3: It, 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 you can't rule it out at this point just because of the fact that this is the 118th Congress and we have seen it already happen. And certainly there has been some anger towards Johnson, or at least towards uh, leadership when it comes to how this process has been handled. You know, you hear a lot about how uh, rank and file members were left in the dark when it came to how this government funding uh, situation went down. And I think we'll hear a little bit more about that today. But in terms of a motion to vacate, we haven't heard anybody seriously considering it just yet. But You know, if something were to happen where this process and this rollout is really testy, I wouldn't be shocked you hear the rumblings. But it seems as though uh, the personal vendettas towards Johnson are not the same as they were towards Speaker McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Somebody who voted to oust McCarthy, uh, Tim Burchett, has said to us over and over again that he's never been lied to by Johnson. He felt that he was lied to by Speaker McCarthy several times.
0: In uh, in looking at the Hunter Biden testimony yesterday before the House Oversight Committee, it was behind closed doors, yet there was the inevitable leaking by both sides. <laughs> and as a media person, we say thank heaven for that. But um, as we look at this, I guess one of the interesting things that stands out, Ryan, is that in other cases involving other presidential children, we have seen them take the fifth. Um, Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden, with a, a, a rather uh, interesting legal strategy, they didn't take the fifth once yesterday in spite of some criminal exposure.
3: No, yeah, and and they were very, someone used the word chatty to describe uh, Hunter Biden yesterday, that he was very willing to speak. Uh, Whether or not he was cooperative or not, that's kind of a a different story. You know, uh, one one member was telling us that he felt that Hunter Biden filibustered a lot, but did say he was very cooperative. Another described him as dishonest. Uh, And then you have Democrats who came out and said that they felt that this was pretty much the death of the Republicans impeachment inquiry because president or Hunter Biden did nothing to incriminate his father or show that his father committed any type of impeachable offense. So, uh, it was quite the day. I mean, just like you guys said, they weren't supposed to be talking about what happened in there. This was a deposition. Everything was supposed to remain behind closed doors, but I would say within an hour or two, after they started the deposition, you had about a dozen Democrats come down to the microphones and start talking about what was going on inside the meeting. So then Republicans saw that as a green light to start talking about what was going on themselves.
0: Uh, Chairman Comer came out and said it proved several bits of our evidence. He was very cryptic. Have have we found out what he believes was proven?
3: I have not seen specifics on what that was just yet. I think Chairman Comer was trying to adhere to the rules of the deposition, which was do not
5: talk
2: mm-hmm. about
3: what happened inside the deposition until the transcript. Is released, but he did say that he does plan on having a public testimony with Hunter Biden in the near future.
1: Ryan, you know, and and we see this back and forth between Hunter Biden and, and the Republican lawmakers. How does this play out in terms of public perception of the impeachment inquiry?
3: I think it really depends on what the American people think, and I think we may find that out on Election Day. You know, uh, I think there's a common consensus that they know that they don't have the votes to impeach President Biden if they were to bring it to the floor. Either right now, they don't have the votes on the House floor. They still have to get enough Republicans on board, and it doesn't look like they have that right now. And number two, you know it's not going to pass the Senate because the fact that Democrats control uh, the, the Senate right now. So uh, I think there was one lawmaker kind of pointing out that he kind of just wants the evidence and the information out there for the American people to make their own decision come November. And then the American people can be the ones to decide if president Biden has committed any wrongdoing, because you're already going to have all this information out there on former president Trump that the American people can decide about. Yeah. Let's do the same with with, with president Biden. And if the American people feel that he's done nothing wrong, then they can make that decision themselves.
0: Safe to say we can't assume that if there was a knockout blow or a smoking gun, we would have known about it by now, and, and Chairman Comer might have been a little bit more forthcoming or would have had some surrogates leak it. There were two two interesting, though, exchanges that kind of form a pattern here. Uh, James Gillier was the uh, business associate that sent a 2017 email to Hunter saying we need to set aside 10% for the big guy. Uh, yeah. Hunter apparently said the guy was out of his mind for suggesting some uh, such a thing. Not exactly a denial. Um, <laughs> and then there was the WhatsApp message that was sent to a Chinese businessman, where where Hunter says, "I'm sitting next to my father, and I want you to take action." Well, he he fell back on saying, "Well, I was high or drunk when I sent that message," and that kind of vexed, I think, a lot of Republicans that he would was repeatedly using his addiction as as a. As a defense here for things that were really questionable,
3: yeah, and I think one thing we talk about is drug use. One, uh, I had a one of our there was a reporter named Kelly Meyer from News Nation who reported based off one of her sources that uh, Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, actually asked Hunter Biden if he was doing drugs or if he was high during the deposition. I believe Hunter Biden snapped back and said, "You're the last person who should be asking questions like that." <laughs>
1: Uh, very quickly, Ryan, before we go, what do you make of uh, the Mitch McConnell stepping down? And which horse is uh, in the lead to replace him? Yeah.
3: Yeah, well, I can tell you the person who's in the lead to replace him is named John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's three of them. <laughs> yeah, the, the the battle of the Johns is likely underway. That's what's been uh, kind of going on. But what's interesting is that a lot of them have been kind of hesitant to talk about the race. You know, I think a, lo- a lot of this with McConnell was very raw, Uh, I don't feel like there was a lot of major heads up when it came to this announcement. It certainly came out of nowhere for me. Um, And and, and, I mean, I think people are still trying to process the fact that Leader McConnell is finally going to be stepping down.
1: Ryan Smells, Fox News radio correspondent, WJR contributor. Thank you so much for your time. Coming up, unprecedented warmth. This week took a dramatic turn as two tornadoes touched down early yesterday, leaving a trail of destruction in their wake. The. National Weather Service confirming the force of nature with an EF2 tornado hitting the Grand Blank area with winds reaching an estimated 115 miles an hour. Also, an EF1 tornado striking Calhoun County's Marengo Township. Let's get the latest in Genesee County with Sheriff Chris Swanson. Sheriff, welcome back to J.R. Morning.
5: Happy leap year. Good morning.
1: <laughs> yes. We've seen a lot of that damage up there in your county I, when watching it down here on television. Well, uh, were there any serious injuries?
5: And can you believe it? It was zero injuries, zero casualties, and we're so thankful for that. That is amazing.
0: Well, and Chris, this is one of those things that it it came down at one twelve. I mean, when folks aren't necessarily tuned into media, they may have silenced their cell phones. Um, It's it's the timing couldn't have been worse.
5: Well, in one way, you're correct because I do agree. It was where everybody was asleep. There was no traffic. It's in February. But the sirens kicked off, and I think because there was no traffic and people were in their homes, nobody had any shrapnel, no glass breakage, nobody that injured because everybody was asleep. So it went through in nine minutes, and uh, the damage was all
1: physical. You know, I understand it was uh, about 3,000 homes and businesses without power. Uh, what's the update on the current situation any, um, and getting that power back on? Right.
5: Consumers is telling us within the next 24 hours, those poles will be replaced because multiple poles were snapped and transmission uh, centers were blown up. But we're doing better. And uh, thank goodness it's not a, a very cold next couple of days. So we're not going to have to worry about you have to rehoming people. We're on the right track.
0: The the National Weather Service says this. Think about this for a moment. This yeah. twister was 450 yards why? yes so i mean it, it was the width of four and a half football fields how long was it on the ground and and how long was the the, the trail
5: so imagine what you just said for almost six miles and it traveled for nine minutes and it just it, in in that path that it took it was went through residential subdivisions in february of all time so it was a, it was a shocker for most but again you know, you can't predict Mother Nature. You have to plan for it.
1: Sheriff, how is your team responding to the aftermath, uh, you know, when, especially when it comes to um, public safety and, and managing a lot of road closures? Because I imagine there's some road closures still.
5: Great question. I uh, I got to give great credit to all the uh, the cops that were on the street immediately that were dispatched. My office also has police paramedics, so we were there to treat anybody that had a medical emergency, traumatic emergency, state police, Grand Blanc Township, Grand Blanc City, the fire departments all just uh just went uh you know full force. And the roads that we had to close were not because of flooding, but for trees and for downed wires and everybody came together and uh and now we got flow that's working perfect and consumers was dispatched, Red Cross was dispatched. I mean, it really was a test of the system that works lawless.
0: It was incredibly frightening for a lot of residents, though. Uh, local force Nick Monticelli talked to a woman who, I think she lost her barn mm-hmm. to the yeah. Twister, and she said she thought she was going to die because she said every wall in her house was moving.
5: Right. It's described that people's walls and roofs were breathing. Imagine that picture. Even if you were alone and you had nobody to, uh, to help comfort you, it is terrifying
1: sheriff uh any advice uh you have for the residents that were affected, especially in in terms of staying safe and and assessing any support services that you guys may have?
5: you know I think the takeaway from this is always be prepared and listen to the system that's in place and and you brought up earlier in your show, people don't have their cell phones on, they're not watching t v or listening to uh w j r at one twenty in the morning all the time, but man, those sirens that kicked in and the procedures don't take that stuff for granted. You know, when those sirens are tested, have conversations with your loved ones, with your neighbors say, hey, if this was a real emergency, where would I go? What would I do? You always prepare in peace to perform in chaos. And that's the takeaway, no matter what the emergency.
0: Yeah, Um, I I know that there was um, while folks are getting back on their feet, there were some businesses that were hit pretty hard near Reed Road and South Dort. Give me a a sense of what kind of damage you witnessed there, and will they be back up and operating
5: anytime soon? No, brother. Total, massive destruction. This was a uh, a supply industrial complex that uh, it's Josh and Paper, and it's a supply company. So think of you know styrofoam containers and uh, carpet cleaning supplies, a major industry. Complete loss. This thing looked like it was uh, blown up from the inside, and so again. The business was closed, and so there was no casualty. There was no workers in there, but it's a total loss, and that was the only commercial business that was destroyed.
1: The, 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 the Was the GM plant hit up there?
5: It had minor damage, but not hit, and, and it did not disrupt uh, operations.
1: And what about your dispatch? Did, did anybody have any issues in calling 911, or do they still have issues?
5: They don't, and you know what's uh, it, 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 a lot of people don't know, but the nine one one system has an overflow technology that when there is a uh, a large income of uh, calls from people, and many times it's the same response, they geotag those calls to prioritize them, and there's certain people that have the ability to call and get on top of you know others. So the system is built that they can get all those calls prioritized, and that worked out well. But a number of people did not call 911 because within nine minutes, by the time they realized it, it was gone. And we were able to really uh, service people that were there. The uh, the emergency response was so obvious that they knew that we were there to help. Mm-hmm. And that was a matter of just sifting through. And daylight certainly came you know, four hours later. We were able to see a, a true assessment. But uh, again, I'm very pleased in light of what happened that the the system worked as expected.
1: Denison County Sheriff Chris Swanson, thank you so much for what you guys, your men and women do there. And uh, thank you for being here on JR Morning. Love you guys. All right. Take care, Sheriff. Prepare Uh, in peace and perform to perform in chaos. (laughs) Wow. I
0: I have that. (laughs) Maybe I should put that over the door here uh, (laughs) to my office or something. Uh, Talk about preparing. We were talking about CEO blunders earlier about the the, the guy from Wendy's coming out and saying, "Yeah, yeah. we're going to test out surge pricing," and the blowback mm-hmm. that came from that. They are now retrenching and and saying, "Oh no, we were never considering that." Well, that's like saying our CEO's an idiot, uh, which is <laughs> which. Who would argue? <laughs> right. Because honest to goodness, the idea that with inflation, everybody's still very sensitized to it, that you would say, yeah, we're going to gouge you when you walk in the door if it's busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, All I, publicity
1: is not good publicity.
0: No. And and a c- couple of days ago on CNBC, Carl Quintinier, who's one of their really smart hosts, asked the CEO of Kellogg about rising prices at the grocery store. And he said, well, we've got this Campaign going on right now where we're suggesting that to shake up the evening dinner, that folks should uh, serve cereal just to, you know, kind of have some fun and yeah. shake up dinner. And we call it give chicken the night off. Well, that was perceived by some people as saying kind of a let them eat cake, snooty, snotty way of saying, uh, you know, we know prices are high, so you should eat cereal instead. And the the blowback on this on social media has been so big, saying that this guy is out of touch, tone deaf. Nothing directed at the decision makers in Washington who made this happen. Right. Who are the architects of of this, you know, $8 trillion bonanza that has led to inflation. Nothing, no condemnation from them. Let's condemn the CEO for suggesting something that might save people money. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's his product.
0: It's his product. (laughs) And, you know, know. well, this is an eat the rich strategy. Well,. No. Um, and asking, you know, what kind of capitalism is this? How about asking where's the where where are the folks in Washington that thought that this was a good idea and where's the accountability there? 645 on uh, a.m. 760 when we come back, Matthew Schneider on the Supreme Court immunity and Trump's inability to front his own appeal. That's next. The president's legal team coming out yesterday saying, no, he does not have the cash or the liquidity to put up the escrow for his appeal. What does that mean? Might we see him have, in essence, a fire sale on some of his most prized assets uh, so that he can uh, bankroll his own appeal? Also, the Supremes have agreed to take up the immunity question. That comes April 22nd. What does that mean for the timing of this case, and will they get it in before the election? For these and other questions, we turn to Matthew Schneider, leader of investigations and white-collar defense at Honigun Law, also the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern
6: District of Michigan. Matthew, hello. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me again.
0: Good to have you on. So just how broadly will the Supremes explore this? Will they just put it within the context of election interference, or will they set some very you know uh expressed limits on presidential immunity what should we expect
6: we should expect that they'll answer the question directly they put that question out there to the parties about whether or not does the president have immunity and if he does to what extent so they are going to answer that question does the president have absolute immunity from prosecution yes or no And more than likely, after they answer that question, then they're going to narrow it. So if the answer is no, he doesn't have immunity, then in what situations can he be immune from prosecution? How is that related to his conduct, his actions, his speech, his other activities as president? So they'll break it down, but they will directly answer the question.
1: Matthew, uh, uh, the uh, former president claimed on Truth Social that constitutional scholars are celebrating the decision. Are are there any scholars that believe that his broad immunity claims have merit, or is the timing alone a victory for the president?
6: Well, there's a thousand opinions on this. So there's people on both sides. Probably their best argument is that this would create a burden on the presidency, and you wouldn't want a president looking over his or her shoulder trying to decide, well, if I leave office, am I going to be criminally prosecuted? Therefore, I will or will not take this action. But look, you know, for Trump's team celebrating that they took this up, I wouldn't be so sure about that. I mean, I used to work at the Michigan Supreme Court, and I remember – uh, an attorney coming in front of the court and saying to the justices, I'm really glad you took up this case. And one of the justices said, did it ever occur to you that we took this case so we could decide against you? This guy was flabbergasted, but sometimes they do that, right? There are motivations for the justices. And as far as the timing, the chances of us seeing this before the election, that that's unlikely, it's possible, but highly unlikely.
0: Well, the DOJ kind of has this tradition, or at least a policy, of not taking up politically consequential uh, actions right before an election. So even if they could get this pretrial stuff done by September, will they run afoul of that?
6: Well, the Justice Department's rule on getting involved in politically sensitive charges, that is about when to file a case, That's when the Justice Department has complete control about when to bring it. After they bring the case, that spins out of their control. They're at the whim of the judge and the defense, and there's uh, laws regarding the governing of timing of trials. So I don't think they'll run afoul of that because the case is already brought.
1: Initially, um, Matthew, the Supremes were briefed. It was February 15th, but they waited two full weeks to respond. Should we read anything into that?
6: I would read two things into that. Number one is this isn't the most um, significant case on their docket. It is significant to us because we follow politics, but they have that Second Amendment case involving domestic violence. They have a case involving bump stocks. Those cases are also very important. Number two, I would also look at how justices take up these cases. It takes four votes to take a case, it takes five votes to grant a stay which Mm. has been done effectively in this case so i would read in that maybe they had some discussions about getting that fifth vote and it took them a while to come around to this and find a way to grant it while staying the proceedings below
0: in the civil fraud case in new york 455 million dollar judgment against the former president he still has the 80 plus million dollar verdict against him in eugene carroll he must put up Uh, a bond equal to that amount in order to move forward with his appeal. This isn't something that's directed at him. This is common policy. Uh, He initially swept away any concerns about his ability to cover the bond requirement. Now his team has gone in and requested a $100 million to cut it by 75%. Um, It doesn't look like that they're going to grant that. What kind of jeopardy does that put the Trump financial empire in?
6: Uh, it puts them in a lot of jeopardy. However, Donald Trump has faced a lot of legal jeopardy in the past, including bankruptcy, and he's used the bankruptcy laws to protect himself, and he's done that quite effectively. In this case, it's not that he can't appeal. He can appeal his case. The issue is whether or not he can come up with enough money to stop the proceedings below so he doesn't have to pay the collections. And now, with the judge saying you can go to New York banks he could put together a conglomeration of different banks. He's certainly not going to get it all from one, but he has more options. He also has access to foreign capital, as I've said before on mm-hmm. your show. So, you know, there are still people who will lend to him. And so. But will so they he, view him as a good risk? As a mayor? risk, right. Right, precisely. Um, he he has properties all over, the, all over the world, however, and whether or not he's a, a good risk in New York City. You know, he has these golf courses in different countries. He might have he might be a good risk in other places where they will lend him money. So he does have options available to him.
1: This I want to ask you about Hunter Biden. You know, he's answering all the questions, didn't take the fifth in his appearance before the House Oversight Committee. Were you surprised by that or how would you interpret the decision to accept, you know, some legal peril?
6: I was not entirely surprised because he's charged related to guns and uh, you know drugs and taxes. He's not effectively being questioned precisely about that. He's being questioned about business operations. And look, I, as an attorney at Honigman, I've put witnesses in front of the House uh, committees before and I've always brokered an agreement ahead of time. Here are the questions. Here are the parameters. If you're not willing to stick within those parameters, we're out of here. And if Hunter Biden, I'm sure his lawyer, brokered something like that, mm-hmm. and the agreement would have been, if you start talking about my federal case and guns, we're done. And there's no reason for the House committee to not follow that because they want to answer the ask the questions right. about the business operations.
1: Matthew, thank
0: you so much. We appreciate your insights. A lot of activity, and we'll await uh, that April 22nd hearing and the public hearing for Hunter Biden, which hasn't been scheduled yet. Should be interesting.
6: Likewise. Thank right, you.
0: Thank you, Matthew Schneider, Honigman Law. New poll dropping about Michigan and uh, battleground states. Oh, good morning and happy Thursday. <laughs> Good morning, welcome, welcome back to winter on this leap day, 2024. So we're going to leap into winter for a day, yeah, and then leap into spring, and then kind of summer so, by Monday. <laughs> it's Michigan, yeah. I'm getting whiplash. Welcome uh, to Michigan. Weather whiplash. Uh, but, yeah, you're going to need to bundle up the kids' attempts in the lower 20s to start your morning. Uh, anyway, getting back to this Bloomberg Morning Consult poll that dropped, and this was covering the battleground states. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, the uh, Donald Trump holds a lead over Joe Biden in all of them. Uh, where his lead is the narrowest is in our state and Wisconsin which means, again, it just brings into focus that Michigan will likely be the most consequential state for the November election, mm-hmm. and that this may be determined here. 35% of voters of so the economy is the single most important issue when deciding how to vote, but that's down from 39%, uh, and an increasing number of voters are citing immigration. So as inflation gets a little more tamed, As our anger about it cools just a little bit, we're turning our attention to to other things. And today, where's the president? Where's the former president? Uh, (laughs) They're
1: they're not going to collide at the border, but they'll
0: be
2: within a
1: couple hundred miles of
2: each other. Yeah, I
1: think one border, like uh, there were like five hundred captures in a day, and the other one it was twelve. So Biden's going to be at the one where there was twelve <laughs> claiming
0: victory. Trump's going to be at the one with five hundred <laughs> seconds. There you go, Ms. And yeah, we'll we we'll, <laughs> we are we are all left to sort that out. Uh, Steph Knight, Axios reporter, uh, is going to uh, be with us coming up at seven thirty-five to talk about this this split screen contradiction that we will see today uh, with those two events. Uh, but some devastating news in this uh, Bloomberg poll for President Biden. Forty-four percent say he's too old. That's actually an improvement from some Mm -hmm. of the other polls. Yeah. But this is the number that stands out. Only a quarter. Only 26 percent see him as mentally fit. Nineteen percent perceive him to be in good health. Yesterday we saw the White House physician come out and say he's in fine health for an 80-year-old man. Leaving unanswered the question, do we really want, if he's in good health for an 80-year-old man, God love him. Yes. But does that mean that we want an 80-year-old man running the country? Um, And uh, there is a plurality of swing state voters that see Trump as dangerous. But a man that's mentally unfit, I would argue, is also dangerous. Uh, That 3 a.m. call, RFK Mm -hmm. Jr. was bringing that up yesterday. And uh, he seems – there's some momentum there. Uh, i got to tell you, if no labels put somebody up – Kennedy Jr. just got on two more ballots. We could see four candidates before us in November, and then it, you, you may see an election like unlike any other. Mm-hmm. Uh, meantime, uh, the, the Detroit Police Chief Front and Center at the White House yesterday talking about crime.
7: We are all grateful for the support of our partners at the White House. Thank you. On behalf of every member of the city of Detroit Police Department, I thank you, sir. We work to reduce crime and improve public safety, and we're going to continue. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce the 46th president of the United States, President Joe Biden.
1: And that was Chief James White introducing the president at this meeting yesterday. He was joined by several police chiefs at the White House to discuss strategies for reducing crime. Uh, White expressed gratitude to the president for the opportunity marking his second visit to D.C., He highlighted Detroit's success in lowering crime rates, citing an 18 percent reduction in homicides, lowest since 1966. He credited increased resources, staff, community collaboration and funding from the president's American Rescue Fund. Now, acknowledging the challenges in law enforcement, Biden emphasized the importance of the role uh, of the role of those police chiefs. White stressed that. The fight against crime is ongoing despite uh, progress. We're not taking a victory lap yet. He says there's still a lot to do. Reflecting on his journey from humble beginnings in Detroit, he expressed hope that his family would be proud of his accomplishments and that he was at the one house speaking with the president.
0: I'm proud of his accomplishments. We are all and, proud of the uh, chief. I, I, and here's Interesting, though, let's be clear here. He was cherry-picked. There aren't many big city police chiefs that can make the statements that he made yesterday. That is correct. And in this election season, I wouldn't call him a prop because that would be disrespectful to him. No. Yeah. Because his story is legitimate. It is. And the statistics he quoted were legitimate. But there are a lot of other cities, and this will be a leading issue in this November election. Crime is big. Uh, crime is big. Yeah. A de escalation of prosecution. And, and we should also point out. And I don't know if he did this, but he has a very good partner in Prosecutor Kim Worthy.
1: He does, not only in Prosecutor Kim Worthy, but also in the uh, U.S. Attorney, as well, Don Isom, as well. Good point. Excellent yeah. point. And the chief will be with us, uh, Guy, at 849, and he'll talk more about what happened at the White House yesterday.
0: Yeah, you know what? He could... Maybe you could go down to Chicago and give them some tips down there. Uh, Or San Francisco. Uh, right. Uh, Lots of places that are struggling with this. Maybe up to New York. I was going to say New York. You know, maybe Kim could go up there and talk to Alvin Bragg. That would be even better. (laughs) Um, Some devastating news out of the Middle East this morning in Gaza. 77 Palestinians killed, 250 wounded. This was a group of civilians that came under uh, an Israeli air attack as they waited for food at an aid station uh... this is according to al jazeera uh... save the children which is a uh... an ngo a charitable group says the world quote is witnessing mass killing of children in slow motion in gaza we defend israel's right to defend itself um, but it this was a, a terrible miscalculation uh, it was if, the, if th- that these folks were targeted and we look forward uh, to learning more about what happened there. This wasn't an errant missile, no. as we've seen before, mm-hmm. from Hamas. Uh, this was, uh, by uh, all accounts, uh, an Israeli attack. Um, interesting story coming out here. We've we got to get to business speed. But 5,500 family properties in the city of Detroit, owned not by absentee owners, mm-hmm. but by families. Inter- intergenerational properties um, have unclear titles. They're their title is clouded. It may make it difficult to sell the home. Um, it may t- puts their ownership of it in jeopardy. 5,500 properties in Detroit with a value of $268 million. This is a big story that's not getting a lot of attention. right? But it's, uh, it is uh, – a, a, I mean, if you're one of the – think of the desperation if you're one of those families that your most important investment, something you've had in the family for years – uh, you, know, you may not be able to prove when push right. comes to sub, and this is because some title companies have been uh, unreliable, uh, have have been fly-by-nighters, and then we've got some fraud out there.
1: Too. Yeah, a Detroit woman entrusted with overseeing a home ownership program aimed at preventing foreclosure. She now faces federal charges for her, her involvement in a property theft scheme. She's 60-year-old Zena Thompson. Uh, She was indicted by the U.S. Attorney's Office for her role in stealing 30 properties across Wayne County. As the former director of home ownership programs for the United Community Housing Coalition, a nonprofit assisting low-income residents, she abused her position to orchestrate the fraudulent transfer of properties. Sticky-fingered bureaucrats that uh, get in there and betray
0: the trust and and, uh, will await her prosecution. Yes. Uh, Time for WJR's Business Beat. Let's check in on the entrepreneurial tech and startup sector of our economy. It's brought to you by shelving.com. We rack your world. Here's Jeff Sloan, president and CEO of Startup Nation.
8: Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. While we are all generally aware of the power of coupons to drive consumer engagement for businesses, a new study from Active Campaign provides key insights into what's important to consumers when it comes to coupon promotions. First, 64% of consumers indicate a willingness to subscribe to promotional emails in exchange for receiving a coupon. An email just so happens to be the most preferred way consumers want to receive those coupons. 77% prefer email as the channel for receiving coupons. Now, shoppers are most likely to use coupons in the following ways. First, They want free shipping. 73% indicate that's the most important use of a coupon for them. Next, a percentage off the retail price. 64% want a discount in effect based on coupon usage. And 16% want coupons in the form of buy more to save more. Now, what's a fair coupon expiration date? Well, 10% of consumers say they want the expiration date to be one week from receipt of the coupon. 52% want a month from receipt of the coupon, and 28% expect a year. Now, we all know the power that coupons can have in driving consumer engagement for businesses, ultimately leading to more sales. Of course, while it cuts into margins, coupons can be used as loss leaders very effectively that help businesses create new customers that they can engage and re-engage over time. Looking for new ways to incentivize consumers to sign up to your e-newsletter, for example, or to receive email promotions from your business? Put the power of coupons to work. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR.
1: Once again, it's Therapy Thursday, where we spend a little time on the couch with Dr. Steve Craig psychologist and corporate coach for Craig Counseling Services in Bloomfield Hills. Doc, good morning. How are you guys? We're good. We also
0: want to welcome... Jamie uh, is on a bit of a break. Yes. And so we welcome in Renee Vitale because, heaven forbid, this should be an estrogen-free <laughs> zone. <laughs> they won't let <lose>, us <laughs> just run free by ourselves. No. We well, have yeah, well, us yeah.
1: boys, you know, together.
9: I'm going to try for Jamie because I know her her record's impeccable.
0: She, so far, she's... Uh, she's it's... 2024 has been is, is, is better than the Red Wings or the Lions <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> for her.
10: It's pressure on you. you <laughs> yeah, have to no pressure. Us, so you're <laughs> saving us. Okay. Dr. Steve, a year ago, I got promoted to be a manager at my company, and I've made tons of improvements in my department over that time. But I just received my first evaluation, and it was so negative that I'm on a performance improvement plan and may lose my job. My, my department did very well financially this past year on my watch. But apparently many people are complaining about how I treat them. But I was given a dysfunctional team filled with a lot of low performers and marginally competent employees. I've had to regularly call out my people for their poor performance and have publicly put a few people in their place. They tell me I need to respect them more, but they show up late, fail to follow through, lie, and do the bare minimum to get by. That is disrespectful to their coworkers, the company, and to me as their boss." They need to be put in their place, and they needed someone strong enough to put them there. But now, despite my good results, I'm told I'm a poor leader and that people don't like me. I'm not there to make friends, but it feels like a double standards that I need to shape things up, but I need to coddle them. How do I be a strong leader if I can't call people out when they need to be? Lloyd's all over this one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And may I just say, I like this guy.
1: (laughs) No, No, I mean you know first of all the 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 guy who's um uh who was just uh promoted to be a manager uh, whoever his boss is uh, i don't i don't know because he's you know friendship over funds because if your department is making money and you have some people that are in your department who are used to sloughing off and not doing the work and you come in and kind of tell them hey we got to you know shape up and and do better and you've done better in your department and you still get a bad evaluation. I mean, it seems like you're you're dealing with, you know, friends. You don't have to be. Listen, you don't have to be my friend, you know, and I don't have to be your friend. But you got to respect me. You got to do the work.
9: Uh, I have a completely different point of view yeah. here because we want
10: to be boy
9: Lloyd. Um, no, I, I I think that there's a difference between bosses and leaders. I think leaders you wanna you want to do well and you want to help them. Uh, we've all had bosses. I think we've all had leaders. And, you know, if they're doing this performance out of out of fear, if they're working for this guy out of fear, eventually there's going to be burnout and it's going to be a short-term success. I think it should be a fine balance. And I know that in the past, I've always wanted to do better for the bosses who had a mutual respect for me and my job. And you work harder for those people. I'm not saying you got to be best friends. No, um, I but I, I think that, you know, leaders lead And, you know, try to create a good culture, bosses tell you what to do, for lack of better terms.
0: There are two guys that I know well, and you would know both of their names. I'm not going to out them. But one of them came in and basically told the whole place, you guys stink. We're going to kick you in the butt. We're going to get And the other guy came in. First of all, he never used profanity. He was a stand-up guy
9: in radio. That's hard. He well, this was
0: also TV. Oh, okay, <laughs> and, uh, and he he also he led by example. And you, by gosh, if you didn't perform, you felt like you were disappointing a guy like your dad, right? That mm-hmm. is, you put it. I I think Renee, y- you just gave uh, Kennedy's School management advice. Mm-hmm. That's that was that was great because there is a difference. Between leadership and management, and I, I couldn't agree more. This guy didn't try to get buy-in from the beginning. Sounds like he came in with a with a steamroller. Uh, and th- what's number one management rule? You praise in public, you punish in mm-hmm. private. And mm-hmm. he violated yeah. the cardinal rule. Yeah. Yeah.
10: Well, so look at that. So I would say I, you know, Lloyd makes a really good point because you know he's reacting to the fact that this person was put in it. It's really hard because if you don't come in strong in a culture like this, you get steamrolled yourself, and so it is a tough situation. But I agree with with you two. You know, thank God we got you in here, right? <laughs> <laughs> because because you, you 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 have to start with the fact that disrespecting people never motivates them or those who observe it, and that your job as a leader is to create a long lasting positive culture, not just one that gets results right now because then you burn out people and it doesn't work. And one of the things I'm always, when I'm doing leadership coaching is, you know, you, you, you show respect to people who don't deserve it, not as a reflection of their character, but as a reflection of yours, Mm -hmm. that you're saying, be like this. And that's what, you know, you two are talking about, which is that if you can get, anyone can get results, we could all come in with a hammer anywhere and get some results, but it's not going to last and you're going to burn people out. What the, what they're really saying to him or her, I don't know you know, okay. what she is, is that we want you to be a long-term leader. So results are good, but to be a long-term leader, you, you're you never going to get anywhere if you say, you guys can't be disrespectful, but I can. Mm-hmm. As yeah. people won't follow you. Eventually, they'll burn out and you'll get and nowhere. If you're,
1: and if your department did well this year... Uh, it may not do well in the,
0: the next, year uh, next year and, year and year after that because
10: and I need you to develop as a leader, not no. as just give me results right now.
0: Right. I, the one thing that he said, though, and why I said I, I really like this guy is he says, look, the, the slackers or the low performers or the indifferent folks, they are disrespecting their coworkers who then yeah. must share a greater burden because of of their apathy. So at what point do you make an example of a few of these right. people? What? Where is that line?
10: And, and that's the art of leadership and even coaching people to be leaders is there. there's a fine line there between you can be too nice and no one respects you and you can be too mean and no one respects you. Like, how do you really get across? And that's what I think they're trying to tell this person is that you have to find that line. Don't just focus on results. Focus on being a leader, getting people on board.
9: And, Dr. Steve, do you think that you can evolve Work ethics in certain people that are slackers with having that type of leadership.
10: Right. If you show them, your job is to show them how to handle problems with dignity, maturity, and professionalism. And and when you do that, it will slowly rub Uh off on them and you can teach to that. And you might not have the best results the first year, but over five years, mm-hmm. you're going to really create a team that everybody wants to be on. You know,
0: I see Nick Roddy listening carefully and because he's such a screamer and he's such a scorched earth guy. Uh, no, he's, he, he, he's that guy that leads by example. Um, Dr. Steve, thanks so much. Good stuff there, Renee. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Renee. Well, yeah, and,
10: no and we do want to be Lloyd's friend. We, I, 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 I like Lloyd uh, still. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a split-screen moment today, both the president and the former president going to our country's southern border. Uh, one will be at a hotbed of illegal migrant crossings. The other will be at an area where he will try to claim success in stemming the flow. There's a certain amount of disingenuousness on all sides here. Steph Kite is covering it for Axios. He's one of their lead political reporters there. And he joins us live on uh, JR. M- she, excuse me. You know, I think Steph Curry. That's my but right there as my brain went. To, Steph, good morning.
11: Good morning. And no no offense on my end. I'm,
0: I'm glad. Thank you. So we will see this split screen moment. Let's take these separately. President Biden going to a certain part of the border where he's going to claim that some of his actions have helped uh, slow the tide. Uh, tell us about what the optics are going to be there.
11: Yeah, you know, it is important that Biden is going to the border. There has obviously been a lot of pressure from the right and even within his own party for the president to make it clear that this is is an issue that he's actually taking action on, that he is taking seriously. And we have seen over the past few weeks and months that there has been a little bit of a shift in the way the administration and the White House in particular talks about this issue, addresses this issue, the kinds of policies that they're willing to accept. So it is meaningful that Biden is deciding to to do, you know, a very rare trip. Presidents do not frequently visit the border. Um, And so it is clear that he is trying to signal that he um, is, is taking this issue head on, an issue that has been very politically divisive for him. But as, as you point out, where you go along the border does matter. He is going to a section of the border that has not been seeing the kinds of crossings that we've seen um, in other parts of the border. This is a little bit of a slower track area when it comes to migration. And, you know, that's always you know part of this is a security issue, making sure that the president is safe etc. But it's certainly going to lead to, you know, a certain kind of image, we're not going to see him with lots of migrants coming across the border. That's not going to be the image image we get.
1: Steph, um, you know, the president will, I'm sure, talk about the foreign born workers who now constitute 19% of the labor force. And then uh, Trump will talk about the crimes committed by migrants in major cities, who wins Who wins that narrative? I mean, you have one side who believes one thing. You have another side who believes the other thing. Is there anyone in the middle? How, how do you get the middle to decide, you know, which narrative they're going to take?
11: I mean, that really is a million-dollar question. I feel like over the past few years we have seen – The immigration issue become just even more polarized than it ever has been with Republicans overwhelmingly focused on the issues at the border and Democrats, as you spelled out there, you know, more interested in highlighting the ways that um, foreign born workers, immigrants help our economy. And there's certainly been a divide there. Uh, One thing that I do feel like we have started to see a shift on is kind of the way. Democrats are talking about the border. There has been a little bit of, um, they have kind of acknowledged recently that this is an issue that they need to fix. One of the key turning points was when we started to hear from, you know, Democratic city leaders in places like New York and Chicago in Denver, um, which have been receiving, you know, thousands of migrants from the border, these cities have been overwhelmed trying to care for them, and mm-hmm. that has really put pressure not only on the White House but also Democrats in Congress to start taking the border conversation a little bit more seriously. Of course, they're not in line with Republicans, but we've seen a real shift there. But we've also seen Republicans really double down on the political messaging, of course, stepping away from the bipartisan border deal in Congress. And so despite the movement from Democrats, the willingness to maybe um, find some kind of compromise, we've seen Republicans also move even further to the right.
0: One of the things, I mean, we talked about the split screen. On the other side, you're going to have Donald Trump talking about record illegal migration. You're going to be talking about the national security aspect. We've seen Chinese nationals coming in, that there's a certain national security concern there. But, of course, he also got his allies in Congress to kill a border bill that could have shut down the border during peak migration. So there, there's some disingenuousness there as well. We keep hearing the Biden White House saying, well, we, we're going to take some action on this. We, we've got executive orders that we can put out there. Do we expect President Biden to announce anything while he's down there, to make good on that claim?
11: So we have certainly heard, you know, from sources and seen the reporting about Biden considering using this, you know, tool called 212F. It's a part of the law that, that Trump used quite extensively when he was in office right? Um, to essentially shut down the border. We know that they're considering that, that it's a plan that they are looking at seriously. There's no real expectation for any further announcement today, but of course, you never know um, how that might play out. There's been some discussion that there might be an announcement ahead of the, the State of the Union address. The timing is unclear, and you know, there's always the possibility that this was a little bit of a political floating of an idea that we never actually see um, then move forward with.
0: I mean, if he doesn't make an announcement, it looks just like a photo op and nothing more.
11: For sure. And, you know, but I have also heard from people within Biden's own party who have stressed to me that they do think in some ways the president's presence on the border does matter. And again, one of the biggest criticisms of Biden's handling of this issue is the fact that he hasn't really addressed it head on. Um, me and my colleague have reported extensively on how everyone within the White House did not want to touch this issue. This is an issue that Biden does not like to talk about. And so the fact that he's going to the border, even if it is more of a photo op, even if it's just him chatting with border officials and hearing the perspective some of the people I've talked to who this issue matters to say that that in and of itself does matter to them and it's a step in the right direction.
0: Well, we know that there are progressives on the left that are going to, you know, scream bloody murder with whatever the president does to try to address this. <clears throat> I've got to ask you that there is, as you point out, along with your colleague Hans Nickel, um, is is that there is a there is an economic uh, component to this. We've been struggling with inflation an increased labor—I sh- mean—and this is not a popular opinion with a lot of people—but that increase in our labor force that comes from overseas does help ease inflation. It's more people producing, and and while that can be a burden, certainly on municipal resources, there is a uh, certainly a, a a benefit to it. If President Trump starts deporting massive amounts of people. How much will that disrupt that labor uh, component? Uh, Michael Strain, who's a conservative economist at the American Enterprise Institute, says that could be inflationary.
11: It definitely could. It could definitely impact, you know, especially particular local communities where there are large numbers of migrants who may be susceptible to deportation in a future administration who are working and are paying taxes through their um, employers. And we have long known that the U.S. relies on foreign-born labor, um, especially you know, just given the demographic trends in our country, the, yeah. the falling fertility rates, people having f- fewer kids. One of the key reasons why the US economy has remained so strong, we see this in report after report is because of immigration, both you know legal immigration through, through you know established visa processes, and also through, you know, asylum seekers and migrants who are coming across the board, they also play a role in that. And there was a CBO report that specifically laid out that growth in immigration and net migration has been, uh, has led to them predicting to have even more workers in the workforce than they initially intended. And the key driver in that increase in migration is actually people coming across the border over the past few years. So, yes, it's not a popular argument, but it is something to take into account as you're figuring out how to fix a very broken immigration Well, because
0: there are two sides to the leisure. That's a side we don't talk a lot about. We should be giving attention to the crime, the national security problems, and the burden that those recently arrived migrants are putting on, on urban resources. Uh, Steph Kite, we thank you so much. We will look for your reporting in Axios. I know there are great newsletters there that people can sign up for and uh, keep abreast of these things, and we appreciate your work.
11: Thanks for having me.
0: Take care. When we return, uh, marijuana, you know, there's this kind of an idea that now it's legalized, that it's very benign, that it's not a health risk. Well, there's a new study that lays bare that claim. We will get to a larger understanding about that at 749 here
1: on JR Morning. Well, most people think smoking pot has little to no effect on cardiovascular health, but a new study is challenging that thinking. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne is here. She takes a look at the newest research. Good morning, Marie
12: and good morning guys this study was done at the massachusetts general hospital they looked at four hundred and thirty thousand adults and researchers found that cannabis use could significantly increase the risk of heart attacks and strokes and in addition the risks rose the more frequently marijuana was used So looking a little closer at these numbers, they found daily cannabis users had 25% higher likelihood of a heart attack and 42% higher risk of a stroke than people who never smoked pot. People who used marijuana just once a week had a 3% increased likelihood of a heart attack, 5% higher for a stroke. Data from the CDC indicates that just over 48 million Americans, that's about 15% of the population, reported using cannabis at least once in 2019. 24 states, Washington, D.C., including right here in Michigan, have legalized pot for recreational use. Now, nearly 75% of the people in the study reported smoking pot as the common way to get high. But they also consumed edibles and they vaped although this study did not significantly look at the risks of smoking marijuana compared to edibles. So that that comparison was not made. But the researchers did note that smoking pot, which is how most people use it, may pose additional risks because of the particular matter, uh, particulate matter that is inhaled. So There's some things that we don't know here. It's unclear from this paper whether marijuana is directly causing heart attacks or strokes or if the people who were already at risk for some reason may have more of a tendency to use it. And overall, researchers said more rigorous and targeted testing research is needed before drawing a direct conclusion that pot causes strokes and heart attacks. But guys, Jamie, uh, Lloyd, and Guy, this was a large-scale study that laid, it raised a lot of eyebrows and it found some important concerning issues.
1: Well, you know, Marie, I, I would think that a, a person would maybe consult their health care provider, but if you're on medicinal marijuana, you have a, a medicinal card, you may do that. But if you're just a, a regular person who's you know, doing it for recreation, you might not be going to see the doctor, but that should be who you should see because you want to make sure that uh, this is not affecting you in an adverse way.
12: Totally agree. It's uh, interesting to note. you know, people self-report things when Mm -hmm. they go see the doctor, right? They fill out those forms. And let's be honest, a lot of times we don't always put everything on there. You know, we're afraid to, we're embarrassed to. So there's that issue. And uh, I have found in the last couple of years that doctors and nurses are more directly asking you, Do you use any uh, marijuana? And then specifically they'll say gummies, uh, uh, chocolate, or whatever. They they get really specific. They don't just let the question pass with a yes or no. They get more specific. So I think doctors are really on to this.
0: You know, this comes on the heels of a lot of really good research coming out of the University of Michigan that talks about brain development Mm -hmm. and that in teens especially – uh, that your brain isn't fully developed, and that you can get uh, some some serious impact on brain development and functioning if you are a heavy marijuana user in your teen years, and I, you know, and this isn't kind of a reefer madness thing. This is just these these are facts that are you yeah. know, documented in the in the research. Um, so it it, you, it gets you on both ends,
12: brain and heart. Oh, absolutely, and and I think the bigger question or the bigger thing to think about is that we don't know a lot about this because there haven't been these large-scale studies done on done on this. It's still and a Schedule
0: one, one drug, Marie, which yes, means yes. that the researchers that want to do the deep dives can't get federal funding.
12: That's for right. It. Right. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And also one of the researchers in this particular study, which by the way, for our listeners, it was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, if you want to take a closer look. But one of the researchers said, I think what we're looking at here is what we were looking at back in the fifties and sixties with cigarette smoke, and we were saying, "Oh, hmm. or, or cigarette use. Hmm. Oh, it looks dangerous, but we're not really sure." So, and then remember what happened with cigarettes. Mm-hmm. We we learned so much more about them. So they're saying, "I." They're, we're almost on the dawn of really understanding the health impact of marijuana.
0: Um. There's also some disturbing stuff out there that, we, you know, we've talked a lot about securing guns, safe storage of, of weapons. And the same thing goes for alcohol and drugs that we're seeing in, in increasing prevalence, where I think 25% of parents reported that they have these things in their home, mm-hmm. but they really don't secure them. And kids
12: are curious. Well, and they look like candy, guys. That's right. I mean, gummies look like candy. They come in those little chocolate, like they look like M&M's. Um, I don't know personally about this. I've just been told, uh, but I, that they, but I, you know, those look like candy to children, and we have heard reports of kids coming to school high, if you will, and having, you know, the parents are reported for child abuse and bringing
1: the the gummies to school, yes. thinking it's candy, and passing them out to their friends.
0: And we do know with yes. with uh, legalization of recreational recreational cannabis, we have seen. Uh, a dramatic increase in calls to the poison centers. Yes, because kids do, in, in, in you know as you point out, if if you don't secure them in, a, in an appropriate spot, uh, Marie, they they look mighty inviting to kids.
12: They sure do. Absolutely. This was a very interesting study and it was a big one. 490,000 adults. That's a lot of people to look at. Um, It's really worth reviewing uh, for anyone who uses pod, you know, in a recreational way Mm -hmm. to just know this. And as Lloyd said, talk to your doctor about this. Be honest about it. It's just (laughs) best to understand what you're up against i'm
0: laughing because there have been elders in my life when you go to the doctor with them and especially if there is a touch of dementia they ask you well how many how many drinks do you have in a week oh i don't drink yeah it's like wait wait, wait a minute. <laughs> i've been drinking with you <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know so there's a certain you kind of need to fact check some of your, yeah, you especially do. when the older folks uh, go to the doctor and be their advocate marie thank you
12: thanks guys
0: yeah this kind of calls up the, the other infuriating story of the day oh. which is this plow driver who runs over this elderly woman who is on her way to getting her hair done turns out the guy was blotto and what's worse he's now been charged 45 years old his name is uh jason yeah. walkley, <clears throat> um,
1: jason walkley of and Warren.
0: uh Pete Lacido is going to uh, really unload on him with the charges here because not only was he highly intoxicated when he ran over that poor woman, but this wasn't the first time. This is his third offense, at least the third offense that we know about, right? right? And And also, this is his second offense for driving on a suspended license. So he's been busted, convicted, suspended. Caught driving, suspended, and drunk again. And now they're talking about uh, charging him as an habitual fourth offender. How many bites of the apple, a poisoned apple in this case, for this poor yeah. lady, does this guy get? It's like playing Russian roulette with this guy. Ex- you know Exactly. And can you think of something more lethal than a, a drunk in a snowplow?
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: You know, because it, there's, there's no uh, protection for a pedestrian. No. There and and this poor lady and I think the original this was in mid January this happened mm-hmm. and uh, I, he did stay at the scene I think and and uh, but the Lucido said the tragedy deepens with each offense underscoring the urgent need for accountability to protect our communities from such reckless disregard for human life Amen uh, we'll continue to follow that case for you. And when we come back, we'll have the other big stories of the day, including uh, the immunity case going to the Supremes. Well, if you feel like you've had a shock to your system, you're certainly not alone as we deal with temperatures in the 20s out here. And, uh, but we're going to be looking at summer-like temperatures by Monday and spring-like temperatures over the weekend. So um, it will be, you know, the, the golf clubs may begin calling. Oh, to you! I know they will. And with with that in mind, uh, listen a little bit later on in this hour, you could win tickets to the Michigan Golf Show. That's March eighth through the tenth, uh, and also qualify for a great stay and play package at the Tullamore Resort uh, up near Big Rapids, just south and east of Big Rapids near Canadian Lakes. There, and uh, I mean that's a gem of a course. And so is Saint Ives, and uh, this stay and play package will give you uh, access. To both and a two-night stay. So that's coming up. Don't call yet. We'll give you a cue to call a little bit later on in the program this morning. Uh, Former President Donald Trump being dealt a blow. uh, The uh, appellate court in New York denied his attempt to freeze the judgment in his civil fraud case. This is the one that Letitia James brought against his uh, business empire. He's on the hook for a $464 million judgment now, one of the things, though, that the court did, Lloyd, was they opened the door to him to being able to access loans from New York banks. He's got to pull up the full the full escrow here.
1: But if I'm a New York bank,
0: do I want to deal with Donald Trump? That's a big question. I mean, you know. Is, you he, a risk? You, objectively, is he a risk? Objectively, is he a good risk or a bad risk, especially knowing that there's the E. Jean Carroll judgment out right. there for $88 million. Um, but interesting that the president... After saying no, I got plenty of money. This isn't going to be a problem. Well, came into court yesterday and said it's a problem. I can cover one hundred million of it, but I can't do the full four hundred and fifty-four. Um, and and so, so can he
1: sell some properties.
0: Well, he can, or he can wait and maybe delay things by having um, Letitia James come after him by seizing the properties and then battling it out in court. I yeah. mean, yeah. There's a lot of things that can happen here. We talked earlier with Matthew Schneider, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan here in Detroit, now in a Law. And he said he thinks that, that, that this opens up the door to Trump. It gives him more options and that perhaps he can uh, put together uh, and underwrite this defense and forego seizure of his properties. Um, we also talked to him about the fact that the uh, Supreme Court is going to take up his immunity case. He said that he has absolute immunity. And that if a president doesn't have absolute immunity, well, then he can't function as president because he will always be looking over his shoulder, uh, looking at the prospect of having someone prosecuted once he leaves office. Uh, that certainly is a legitimate concern if you allow this to be abused. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we asked uh, Matthew Schneider about the timing of this. The first hearing is going to be on April 22nd. There's going to be 90 days of pretrial after that, presuming that they make a decision on that within a timely manner. Can this trial happen before the election?
6: We should expect that they'll answer the question directly. They put that question out there to the parties about whether or not does the president have immunity and if he does, to what extent. So they are going to answer that question. Does the president have absolute immunity from prosecution? Yes or no. And more than likely, after they answer that question, then they're going to narrow it. So if the answer is no, he doesn't have immunity, then in what situations can he be immune from prosecution? How is that related to his conduct, his actions, his speech, his other activities as president? So they'll break it down, but they will directly answer the question.
0: And after they answer it, will we see it before the election? Matthew says highly unlikely that this will push it. Past the election well, because of all the pretrial motions, which Andy McCarthy, Matthew, and other legal experts have said was the entire point of the immunity yes. claim in the first place, was to try to push it past the election.
1: So, will, will the Supreme, so could they, uh, you know, rule on it by June when their term is up? I think that's the, the I, I yeah. think that they think by June 14th they'll have an answer. Have an answer, and then.
0: The question is, the, out of fairness, the pretrial, and if
1: they do offer limited immunity, what. You know, what needs to happen? So if it's that if they say, OK, we can start this in September, they could say, well, that's too close to the election and that's election interference and it needs to be, you know, uh, delayed more.
0: That's one argument. The mm-hmm. other argument is if you want a fully informed electorate, that whether it's the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case or the election interference case, voters deserve to have more clarity and more information and to see the evidence of that mm-hmm. before the election. Uh, and so I mean, we got one client side claiming election interference and another side claiming election integrity in terms of having a, a fully informed electorate
1: uh the uh, chief of police was in uh Washington yesterday, and we're going to have him up at eight forty nine to talk about uh his um uh chat with President Biden. But uh, guy, you know about uh, Shot Spotter, and that's the technology that's right, you know, placed around and has helped police a lot. When a gun goes off, it, it tells police where the the area where it relates. Yep, and the police get there, and a lot of times they can thwart some things or arrest people who have done some bad things. Well, a major security breach has exposed the locations of Shot Spotter sensors across the United States, raising concerns about privacy invasion and racial bias. The leak was traced back to Sound Thinking, which is the company behind ShotSpotter. And it has ignited controversy over the accessibility of sensitive surveillance data. Critics arguing that the technology, predominantly deployed in low-income and minority neighborhoods, exacerbates issues of racial profiling and violates civil liberties. Detroit's Board of Commissioner member Willie Burton applauding the transparency brought by the leak, denouncing the technology as unconstitutional and ineffective in saving lives. Despite the revelation, Detroit police reaffirmed that their deployment strategy inciting contractual agreements with ShotSpotter, however... Skeptics question the allocation of funds, suggesting alternative investments in community engagement and crime prevention. As that debate unfolds, Sound Thinking is pursuing legal action against the perpetrators of the data breach. And when we talk to the chief, I'll ask him uh, what he thinks about this. There's going to be a public meeting today at Detroit Public Safety Headquarters at 3 o'clock to talk more about this. This is so tiresome.
0: And that leak was, was strategic. It's designed it to try to do this. And why are we more concerned about a very limited and very narrow civil rights issue instead of the very basic right to be, feel safe in your home? Yes. Why are we constantly more concerned about uh, these theoretical racial profiling issues, and not the very real threat that people
1: face in their homes. Exactly. So you don't have the sensors there. People, you know, there are shots being fired. Nobody knows. Nobody's calling the police. Nobody's calling 911 because they don't want to be involved. But ShotSpotter is actually letting police know, here, there's some gunshots here. You need to go check it out.
0: Yeah. You're you're putting people's safety in in advance of, of what is a very dubious complaint. Yeah. So, um, I hope they push back hard on that.
1: And and you know the, the other thing is is knowing where they are. Are they worried about sabotage? That's another thing. You got to worry about that too. Uh, you know, keeping those sensors safe. People could go and try to sabotage. P- people who are against it, they could try to destroy it. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain
0: I wouldn't call it terrorism, but there is a certain mischief yeah. that could come about as as a result of this, uh, based on I think a lot of misguided notions. Yes there uh, hunter biden going before uh the house oversight committee very interesting i mean he's got a lot of legal exposure here and yet he did not take the fifth amendment we have seen other presidential children do that when they've been confronted with some uh questions of thorny questions that have been asked uh but i gotta tell you what he did do and it's really kind of a fifth amendment thing but it, it's a different kind of alibi is that when he was asked about the whatsapp um post that he put out there saying uh, to a chinese business associate my dad is sitting right beside me we need action on this now well doesn't that insist that your dad was actively yeah. involved in your business it's just no i was really drunk and really high when i sent that out this kind of like it's it's a it's a the dog ate my homework kind of an excuse it, it, and apparently he defaulted to that a number of times During his questioning, we don't know a lot of what happened because this is behind closed doors. Uh, But according to some in the room, this was a repeated uh, excuse that he used. Uh, He also discredited the business associate who said that they were setting aside 10 percent of the proceeds for Joe Biden, referring to him in an email as the big guy. He said that uh, that guy was out of his mind for making such a suggestion. He reiterated that his dad didn't have any uh, direct connections to his business nor indirect connections. Um, and at least for the moment, the House Oversight Committee has not, they don't have their smoking gun. So, are there more witnesses down the line? Well, that they the, think they will get a smoking The next round of this is Hunter Biden testifying in public. And oh. uh, you can spell circus with a capital C <laughs> there because we know <laughs> there, there may be, <laughs> yeah. There there may, may be some uh, legitimate information gained from it, but a lot of it is going to be a lot of posturing and a lot of flogging. Yes. Uh, and uh, and heaven knows there will be far too many politicians on both sides trying to make themselves heroes out of this by, uh, by a lot of posturing. Uh, by the way, a little bit of accountability coming down for a married couple that couldn't keep their dogs under control. This horrible case for a man. Uh, they're going to face some serious charges there. This couple that uh, in the horrible mauling that killed yes. a father of, I think uh, four, I believe, father of four yeah. children. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking uh, about the uh, uh, the call for greater enforcement at the border. This, as both the president and former president, will be making their own separate split screen appearances at our southern border, claiming that they are enforcing uh, against illegal immigration. We'll get a great perspective on that next at 819. You know, check out your lawn right now. The winter was pretty kind to us. But if you still see winter kill, if you still see uh, snow mold, things like that, chances are your lawn was not prepped and ready for winter. Mine was. And and, uh, that's not any credit to me. That's all credit due to Natural Way Lawn and Tree Service. Their motto, get green and stay green. And by golly, it did. Even during the winter. Um, Right now, if you purchase a full lawn program, you get a really good deal: free grub control. And we know what a mess they can make of the roots of your lawn. You got to mention my name though, Guy Gordon WJR, to get that. And you will save green when you prepay. You need to call by the end of next month for that early bird discount. Why do I love Natural Way? Well, for one thing, they treat my lawn like it was theirs. Uh, I have one guy coming. Uh, that takes accountability for what's happening on my lawn. My very own specialist who gives me a custom-tailored solution to all the very unique needs that my lawn has. And no lawns are exactly the same. They're a wonderful locally-owned company, and they've been doing this for 30 years. Uh, Fewer chemicals, environmentally sound practices. You don't need to worry about the dog, kids, or grandkids going out on your lawn after an application. Call them today, 888-GET-GREEN. That's 888-GET-GREEN and stay green with Natural Way. It will be a split-screen moment with two uh, desperately different narratives on what's happening at our southern border. President Joe Biden going down there, visiting a place where there has been relatively few illegal crossings. Former President Donald Trump going to an area that is basically a superhighway for illegal immigration. Uh, both of them trying to spin the story their way. Way. Um, The one thing that is being lost in all of this is a very harsh reality that our nation's cities are being burdened by this and a national security threat based on the kind of people that are trying to get in. We have seen a change in the makeup of individuals trying to cross illegally. It is not just Central American folks looking for economic opportunity or fleeing oppression in their home countries. This is brought into a clear focus by a wonderful op-ed uh, in the Daily Caller, from Emilio Gonzalez, he is the uh, former director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services under President George W. Bush. He's also a, a U.S. Army intelligence veteran as well, and uh, he penned this op-ed with Senate candidate and former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers. Uh, good morning, sir.
4: How are you? Thank you for the invitation.
0: Excellent to have you here. I want to talk about this this change that we've seen in the composition. <laughs> of those crossing illegally. We're we're pretty familiar with the idea of, of Central Americans seeking refuge or opportunity, but you are giving voice to something in terms of Chinese and African immigration that is totally unique. What is it about that that causes you so much concern?
4: Well, uh, the main thing is is and one of the things that I tr- I try and tell people when I talk about this subject is When you look at the southern border, quite frankly, it has very little to do with immigration and and try and wrap your brain around that. Um, This is this is an existential threat to the United States. This is a national security threat. This is a humanitarian crisis. This is a fentanyl crisis. This is a identity crisis identity theft crisis. And we can talk about that later, Mm -hmm. but more than everything else, this is a business and, and, and people fail to understand. You just mentioned it. You have folks that are being trafficked from West Africa to Turkey, where they jump on an aircraft uh, run by Turkish airlines, and they take a flight to Bogota, Colombia. And then when they get to Colombia, they make their way to the Panamanian border, where they meet other traffickers and they walk them all the way up to the Texas border. Um, That takes a lot of logistical planning. That takes a lot of money. And it turns out that the only people that are not making money are the U.S. taxpayers. When when, when you think about it, uh, I read a statistic last year, state and federal government spent $450 billion on illegal migration. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody that comes through there has money. Somebody has to pay for those flights. You land in uh this again this is another example. You land in Colombia. Um, you know where to go because uh a lot of the non governmental organizations have set up paths for you to head to the borders if you will. They give you maps on where to go um. The traffickers make money. The people along the way make money supplying food and water and transportation and accommodations. And then they get to the United States, and the only person that doesn't make any money is the U.S. This is a business. This is an international human trafficking business that needs to be stopped.
1: Uh, Mr. Gonzalez, I want to ask you about about the bipartisan border bill uh that was killed by uh the former president. What 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 is the solution? How do we how do we solve this? We have two sides who are trying to come together to solve it. Was that bill not good <clears throat> enough?
4: Well, the border bill quite frankly is a disaster. I mean, I I read it twice. The first time I read it, I couldn't believe how bad it was. I thought maybe I was missing something. Um and all the border bill does is it provides money to facilitate bringing in more migrants across the border. You know, it calls for more immigration judges to speed up the courts. It calls for more border patrol agents, and everybody is you know glad handing. Yes, we're going to have more law enforcement. But the border patrol agents we have now aren't allowed to do their job. They're there to process people through the border. So we're going to spend you know billions and billions of dollars and we're not going to put an end to this. If anything, it's going to exacerbate the situation because it'll be so efficient and so streamlined that it'll just draw more people. Um, So, so that is, for me, it was a non-starter. The house bill, the the house bill, was that better? No, the house house bill, the house bill is, is quite strong. And, And the house bill, you know, does what needs to be done. You know, Hey, let's before we start talking about all this other peripheral stuff, Let's just put an end to what's happening at the border. Let's let's stop the crisis in its tracks. Um, and the House bill does that. Um, but there's a lot of things um, that this administration could do that they don't. I mean, they they just they really have no interest in doing this. So if Joe, Joe
0: Biden's going to the border today and he's his his uh, administration keeps paying lip service to. Well, he's considering some tougher measures. If he really wanted to address this and be honest upon his visit to the border and announce something meaningful, what should he announce? Look,
4: um, he is going to – he says he's considering tougher med- – why are you considering it? Just do it. There are existing laws that he can obey. Right now the federal government gets around existing immigration law by you know having policy changes and uh, executive orders. Just obey the current law don't make state leaders the enemy like like greg abbott mm-hmm. you know why is he why is he a bad guy because he wants to protect his the state they, they should end catch and release you don't need congressional approval to do that he could do that with a signature you know they, they've they bought hundreds of millions of dollars to construct the wall yeah why not why not just keep constructing the wall
0: remain in mexico
4: exactly that's another one remain in mexico and the other thing is they need to they need to engage all the regional governments forcefully you know why is it that every country in central america why is it that these migrants cross 11 national boundaries to get to the us why because none of those countries are going to let them stay there and all of those countries are going to make money so they don't they don't care if there's a caravan of 10,000 people going through costa rica they're not staying and oh by the way and on the way through they're going to drop hundreds, if not millions of dollars in, in all sorts of the necessary things that they need to buy. So, so again, you engage the State Department. You, listen, you sanction governments, you sanction businesses, all these airlines. That, um, I'll give you an example. One airline added flights to Nicaragua. Uh, because business is so good, I mean, who goes to Nicaragua on vacation? Nobody. Right. These are all flights of migrants that are flying to Nicaragua because Nicaragua facilitates their travel to the United States. Right.
0: Emilio Gonzalez, we thank you for being with us. We should also point out um, you raise issues with the Chinese migrants, uh, a huge influx of illegal Chinese migrants, and that there that there is an espionage concern there as well. We thank you for your time, uh, and you can find Emilio's. Uh, commentary in the Daily Caller, along with Mike Rogers. Thanks for being with us. So as we like to on uh, Friday Eve, we want to help you plan your weekend by uh, checking out what's going to be coming to both your streaming services and to the multiplex near you. We welcome in from the Detroit News film critic Adam Graham. Adam, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, we have been awaiting this blockbuster since Dune One debuted back. What was it was almost three years ago now. Yeah, um, December
13: twenty twenty one when we were deep in the pandemic.
0: Yeah, which was not exactly a time we all wanted to cluster in one place. Um,
13: exactly, we weren't even really going to the movies then. I, I this this was a movie that premiered on Max, and it, it was. I think there were some theatrical showings, but we weren't. It wasn't until Maverick, it wasn't until Top Gun, 2 that we really started going back to the movies in large numbers. And at, at the time,
0: it I mean, it was kind of a, I mean, look, the, the book makes for a great doorstop. I mean, it's a huge book, and they were nine hundred pager I know, and you know, they're trying to pack all of that into uh, at least the first film, and got us a start. It was kind of a clunky movie. Um, it was in terms of dune 2 does it move a little quicker and is it a little bit more user friendly for those of us that maybe are not huge science fiction fans
13: and and that would be me as well and and i came to dune on the first one um pretty cold i had never even i had never seen i had never read the book i had never even seen david lynch's 1984 version and I was just kind of mystified that that this is the blockbuster that you're giving us. This is the thing that you've been hyping and hyping. And I think that part one did a lot of the kind of work of setting up. And the payoffs come here in Dune part two. It's the first blockbuster of 2024. It feels like a blockbuster. It's got this kind of big epic feel to it. And it's just got more of, of the characteristics that we think of when we think of blockbuster filmmaking, like a good guy and a bad guy and kind of like a more linear story. And it just, it presses those buttons that you need pressed. Um, Timothy Chalamet and Austin Butler are the stars here, the good guy and the bad guy. And Austin Butler, who was in Elvis a couple of years ago, um, is, is a rock star of a, of a villain in this thing. He looks menacing, he acts cold, and he kind of brings the energy That that first one was missing this new one and again not didn't read the book Um, I finally did see David Lynch's version a couple weeks ago and it's totally mystifying for other reasons but this is a movie that I while there's still a barrier to entry because it is deep geek state like sci-fi stuff this is something that that people can watch and get something out of. Even without having done the homework on right. on Dune Part One, it's we, a big movie and it feels big and it feels fun.
0: We should point out Dune One is on Netflix, but the last day is today. So if you wanted, <laughs> so if you wanted to tee it up, um, you best to not to
1: drag your feet. Yeah, and, you know, I think you answered my question though, uh, Adam. Is that could I just watch this? Uh, could I just watch Dune Part Two and not have to watch? Do part the work, Floyd. I could do the work. I could do the work, but I'm just saying, you know, for those who who haven't seen it, could I just, you know, check it out uh when it comes out tomorrow and and be okay. You can you can do that. You're going to be a little bit confused and I was even a
13: little bit confused watching this one because this this is a 2 hour and 46 minute movie. This movie is enough for two movies and there's so many different characters. There's like I think 7 Oscar nominees in this movie um, in a, in a cast of, you know, two dozen characters that unfolds across several different planets in some other galaxy where the controlling factor of the universe is this substance called spice. And the first movie kind of set up this world of spice and the importance and you know, spice. And it just seemed all kind of like silly. Um, This one It helps to know that stuff, and you might still even be confused within this one, but there are, like, tropes that you can pick up on in this where you can just have a good time while still being slightly confused and kind of walking away being like, oh, man, that's a lot of movies because (laughs) it is. I mean, two hours and 46 minutes, uh, you know, plan your bathroom breaks, uh, figure out your snack situation accordingly.
0: Boy, that is a tall order. (laughs) Um, So... If we want something a little bit lighter, maybe a lot lighter uh
13: Adam Sandler has a new movie out yeah, and, and you know I wanna say that this is light Adam Sandler material, but this is Sandler as maybe dramatic as we've ever seen him really? and yes he plays an a he plays a cosmonaut he's a the a Czech cosmonaut who is alone in space, kind of drifting. And, and wondering about his 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 life down on earth, he has a wife played by Carrie Mulligan, and she's getting ready to leave him. And he's up there in some sort of like existential state, wondering about it all. This movie's called Space Man. It starts on Netflix tomorrow, and it's a um, it, it, let's just say it's a gigantic slog. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it, might the most, it might be the most inaccessible. Uh, movie that Adam Sandler has ever done and because it's Adam Sandler, you're kind of just waiting for him to start like this! And he never does that and you kind of wish that he would because his passenger on board this this spacecraft where he's floating through the stars is a gigantic spider and him and the spider become friends. I mean, this is adapted from a, a, a Czech book that was came out maybe five or six years ago and it's it just kind of, it's, it's mystifying in in ways that we're not used to, from our beloved Adam Sandler, who is always—you know—he'll—he'll he'll ground us, he'll—he'll yeah. he'll make us laugh, he'll—he'll yeah. he'll save the day. He's—he's he's not necessarily doing that here. I gotta uh, say it, though,
0: it, the it, times when I've seen him do something dramatic, it's been refreshing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, yeah. he has some pretty good chops.
13: I, I, I'm a huge Sandler fan. I have been forever. Um, and, and those 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 glimpses into that other that other Sandler that he's given us. Punch drunk love, uncut gems have been successful. This one is, is is one where it doesn't quite come together, and it's kind of confusing. I, I think so. So on Netflix, you know, you have your kind of um, your playthrough rates, uh, people who who go through the entire movie. I have a feeling that most anybody who watch a lot of people that watch the thing are going to drop out. It's just do they drop out at the at the at the hour mark? Mm. Do they do they drop out at the, at the hour 20 mark? It's just a tough one to get through. The, the good thing is I I it's my job to get through these things. Yeah. Otherwise, if, if I wasn't so dedicated to my work, I would have dropped out easily um, at, at numerous points in this thing. I'm Adam Graham taking one for the
2: team.
1: <laughs> I'm,
13: guy. I'm trying I'm out here for the people,
1: Adam. Uh, you know, I I got grandkids and, and the kids are going to be uh, looking forward to the uh, Kung Fu Panda franchise.
13: Everyone is, right? Yeah. I, I feel like for, for whatever reason, uh, I think the last Kung Fu Panda was before the pandemic. And I think that um, there, there might be like a new generation of kids that are coming up that have seen the trailers that have seen the posters. And they're wondering like, hey, what's this Kung Fu Panda all about? Uh, in addition to the people that have grown up with it that are, are, are welcoming, you know, the return of Jack Black in this franchise. I think this is going to be a big hit. It hits theaters. Uh, I believe, next Friday, March 8th. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people people are ready for the return of the Kung Fu Panda. This is the world we live in, uh, the fourth Kung Fu Panda a- adventure. I haven't seen it yet. I think I see it. I might see it Saturday. I might see it Tuesday. i got to check my calendar.
0: All right. And are there any hidden gems out there, streaming or otherwise, that uh, might be overlooked that we should consider?
13: Oh, God, you're putting me on the spot here. Yeah, can I am. You, can you, um, can you, because can you, you're uh, captain of the team.
2: And
13: we... <laughs> um it, it, it's been a tough it's been a tough we're in a that, that, that tough point of the year um where it, it's before the oscars all the kind of things from the past year that didn't come out are, are kind of coming in there's one there's one that i kind of like and it's in theaters right now and i didn't know anything about it until I, it was already in theaters um it's called the land of bad it stars uh luke hemsworth who's not Thor, but Thor's brother, and Russell Crowe. And it's a war movie. And the Hemsworth brother is kind of lost in the Philippine jungle. And he's, he's, he's talking to a drone pilot who's stationed back in the U.S., who's stationed in Vegas. He's played by Russell Crowe. And um, Russell Crowe's character is able to track him through wow. and, and help him find safety. And this is Russell Crowe. And Russell Crowe has kind of been on the sidelines for the last, I don't know, 10 years. You you don't see him doing a lot of things.
1: And the title
0: again is?
13: It's called Land of Bad. All right. It's in theaters now. It's on DVD and stuff in a a couple weeks. It's worth it.
0: Perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for.
7: Love a good war movie. Thanks so much. We are all grateful for the support of our partners at the White House. Thank you. On behalf of every member of the city of Detroit Police Department, I thank you, sir. We work to reduce crime and improve public safety, and we're going to continue. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce the 46th president of the United States, President Joe Biden.
1: And that was Detroit Police Chief James White, who was among several distinguished police chiefs invited to the White House to discuss strategies for reducing crime in their cities. It marked Chief White's second invitation to meet with President Biden, highlighting the significance of his contributions to public safety during his visit, Chief White had the opportunity to showcase Detroit's remarkable achievements in crime reduction, and he joins us now on the JR Morning Live line to tell us all about it. Good morning, Chief. Uh, good morning. Good morning. It was uh, great. I, I, I was so proud. and I think we all were proud. We saw you up there uh, at the podium and uh, touting uh, the, the great uh, things that the city has done, the, your men and women have done to reduce crime and and uh, being able to introduce the the president before kind of that them meeting, seeing the thing. Yeah. You know what I mean, <laughs> my goodness.
7: <laughs> yes, it was uh, a very proud day for the city. I'm very proud of our officers and the work that they've done. Uh, as I often say, uh, I'm, I'm I'm just a coach of a really good team, and uh, they work. They get it done day in and day out. I'm very proud of them.
1: When you talk to uh, some of the other police chiefs that were there and and how they got there. Uh, crime reduced? Did you guys, uh, you know, uh, exchange some ideas or did you get some new ideas while you were there?
7: Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that we spent a, that was really aside from being, you know, honored to introduce the president and, and, and have the invite uh, in the first place. I, I tell you the, the, the biggest benefit beyond that was the, the stuff that didn't occur during the speech. Uh, it was the one-on-ones with the different chiefs and learning some of the things that they're doing uh, and they're all doing some really, really good work. And, you know, everything is is, is really grounded in getting out and, and working with the community and engaging the community uh, as part of the solution uh, as opposed to, you know, just this let's lock everybody up mentality because that doesn't work. It's it's about community engagement and building trust in the community. So we had a, a really good conversation about that. And I've got some ideas. They borrowed a couple of mine. Uh-huh. And uh, I borrowed a couple of theirs. So we're pretty excited about it. We
0: know that this improvement uh, that we're celebrating in Detroit is not the the end of things, but we also know it's not universal, that there's an awful lot of urban centers that have not experienced the same declines in carjackings and violent crime. What has been the difference for Detroit and how important is consistent prosecution as well? You mentioned the team, the other part of the team, the prosecutor.
7: Yeah, it really is. It's three tiers. It's the prosecution, you know, COVID created a situation Uh, the pandemic where we we saw courts shut shut down and, uh, you know, really um, not being able to hold people accountable for violent crime had an impact. Uh, I got to give the mayor and and the U S or the mayor and the 36th uh, district court and uh, third circuit, uh, you know, our Wayne County exec, I've got to give them full credit for putting together a team of folks to address uh, you know, the, the backlog issue, the, the courts came to the table. The chief judge came to the table. Uh, the prosecutor Kim Worthy herself came to the table, uh, Warren Evans uh, and, and the mayor. And we, we rolled up our sleeves and we came up with a solution to help the courts. Uh, we, some things that we needed to correct on our end in the police department. And it really, really uh, paid dividends to getting the courts much more efficient than they were. So that's one pillar. The other pillars are partnerships. I started to say to us attorney, um, and all of those other players I just mentioned at the table and, and building on uh, addressing violent crime in the most violent areas of our city, not arresting everybody, but also looking at some of those things that we can do to prevent crime in the first place, uh, those socioeconomic issues and giving people services. And, you know, when, you, when you've when you got people who are in the business of generally locking folks up at the table, giving people Opportunities to get their GED and find jobs and things like that. It's it's a true game changer. Uh, I mean, it's it's incredible. And then finally, enforcement, the officers, the officers, um, you know, the raises, uh, not having to uh, worry about retention when you've got $10,000 raises for the officers Uh, and the officers that you see in Detroit, my goodness, they work, they work.
1: Chief, uh, I got to ask you, too, about this uh, security breach that was exposed uh, to covert locations of ShotSpotter. I I understand it was this security breach that was uh, letting people know where the sensors were all across the United States. And now you got people talking about, uh, you know, uh, accessibility to sensitive uh, surveillance data and racial profiling and violating civil liberties. Your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm.
11: Yeah, you
7: know, I, I I saw the article like everyone else, and I'm going to get and dive more into that. But I, I want to caution everybody because a lot of it is just when you listen to what f- people are saying uh, around it. What are they saying? Are we saying that? So now we know where the sensors are uh, in areas of the city um, that are there to identify shots. So what are we saying? Are we saying then that don't shoot there? That's good for us. That, yes, there's, there's a sensor. Don't shoot here. And, and I got news for you. Don't shoot anywhere. Because what ShotSpotter does, and I don't work for the company, I'm not going to work for the company. But when you look at the reductions we've had, okay, it's it's in part due to our technology. It's ShotSpotter. It's Greenlight. It's all of the tools that we use to keep our city safe. Mm-hmm. And the same critics that are out here making noise and, and talking about uh, where the where the sensors are placed What's their solution for people being shot in our community?
2: Exactly.
7: What's their solution? You know, what what where were they when that eleven-year-old was shot, uh, laying on her couch? Where were they at? Where, where were where were they at uh, uh, about those issues? So I'm going to get into it. Certainly, I'm sensitive to to privacy, but this does not compromise privacy. No, no this is it this, this is saying that a censor is in a particular area of the city. Would we prefer for you not to know that? Well, in some instances, only because we don't want you to pull the sensor down. Exactly. Okay? Are you That's worried
0: it. about sabotage, Chief? you only got a few seconds yeah. left. Are you worried about sabotage because of this breach?
7: Well, you know, we're going to be more sensitive to it, but but the idea is to make sure that the community understands that this is a tool for their safety and there should never be a place in the city that anybody should be comfortable shooting in. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get engaged in that heavily today and find out wh- wh- exactly what this means. But I can tell you right now, I know you've got a couple seconds, the messaging around it is absolutely wrong. It is wrong.
1: Chief, always a pleasure to have you on and we just <laughs> love your passion and we love what you're doing for the city of Detroit, the men and women here and all go, the partners. Go get em. <laughs>
2: And we'll see you. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. And we'll see you tomorrow. All Talk is next.